Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Amitav Ghosh is an Indian-born scholar, novelist, and nonfiction writer. His many books include The Groundbreaking, The Great Derangement, Climate Change, and The Unthinkable, in which he explored our imaginative failure in an age of ecological crisis. I recently spoke with Amitav about his newest book, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis, and how the widespread silencing of non-human voices is deeply entangled in capitalism and the geopolitical structures that sustain it. In our conversation, Amitav calls on storytellers to lead us in the necessary work of collective reimagining, decentering human narratives, and recentering stories of the land. The Nutmeg's Curse takes you on a remarkably deep journey into our collective past, exploring the root causes of climate change and the ecocide, and how climate change is intimately linked to colonialism, the genocide of indigenous peoples, and structures of organized violence that you describe as being foundational in forming the modern geopolitical order. And you take us on this journey through the story of the nutmeg, the spice that originated in the Banda Islands in Indonesia. And the nutmeg really becomes the, the lens through which you explore so much in this book. How and why did you end up choosing the nutmeg to tell this story? Well, I think the nutmeg's history really encapsulates the history of the planet in some bizarre way, you know, the modern history of the nutmeg. Because uh, really what the nutmeg was is that uh, it it was a gift of uh, volcanic earth. It was a gift of the incredible forests of of Maluku. And uh, in the end, uh, you know, for... For more than a millennium, it made the people of this tiny um, archipelago, the Banda Islands, it made them rich and prosperous, and they had uh, they had good lives. They were rich. They were great traders. They were trading across the across the oceans. But in the end, it brought it brought doom upon them. You know, all that prosperity and wealth was really a kind of uh, mirage, because uh, ultimately, those people were just massacred by the Dutch colonialists. Uh, you know, it was one of the first early modern genocides. So the uh, people of the Banda Islands really became uh, among the earliest uh, victims of what you might call the resource curse. And in a, in, in a sense, that's exactly the curse that's uh, fallen upon the entire planet. And it's come about now because we've treated the planet really as a sort of inert repository of resources for a very long time. But now the planet is striking back you might say, almost vindictively at us. Mm-hmm. You, you wrote that if we put aside the myth-making of modernity, which, in which humans are triumphantly free of material dependence on plants and acknowledge the reality of an ever-increasing servitude to the products of the earth, that the story of the Bandanese and the nutmeg no longer seems so distant from our present predicament this seems to challenge the notion that we're less dependent on natural resources than we used to be, um, that 
technology has removed us in part from that dependence? Uh, yes, uh, I think that's one of the myths of modernity. You'd always hear people talking about, um, you know, how uh, human beings have become independent of the earth and so on. But in fact, it's just a complete myth because, you know, after all, fossil fuels are things of the earth, you know, and we are completely dependent on fossil fuels uh, today. I mean, I just looking, I'm just looking around this studio. Every single thing in this studio runs on fossil, uh, fossil fuel energy. You know, I mean, today it's not just uh, it's not just our lighting or our, or even the cars. Even our food comes from fossil fuels. You know, essentially, I mean, all these fertilizers. What are they? Are uh, huge amounts of fossil fuels. You know, and you look around it all around you, which is the most common material in this room. It's probably some kind of plastic, again from fossil fuels. So, in a way, our lives have become so intertwined. Uh, with these fossil fuels that we've stopped even noticing the degree to which uh, we are dependent on these things. You, you spoke about uh, the earth being inert. And this seems to be one of the central themes in your book, that the modern view of the earth is one that is inanimate and that this lies at the heart of the crisis unfolding around us and that this view emerged out of intersecting processes of violence. Uh, and most significantly between European colonizers and the indigenous peoples of America, who believed that the earth was alive, had agency, um, and was sacred, and that the conquest of the Americas went hand in hand with eradicating the belief that spirit existed in all matter. Yes. You know, usually when people talk about the emergence of the modern uh, sort of worldview in which the earth is, is inert, uh, they usually trace it back to certain philosophers, you know, philosophers like Descartes, if you like, and, uh, you know, other European philosophers of that time, Locke and so on. But in fact, I think uh, that uh, this philosophy arose out of uh, human conflict. It was when Europeans begin, began to see that, you know, the incredible effect that they were having upon uh, the people of uh, the peoples of the Americas and also upon Africans. It, it, it was when they began to see, when they began to enslave uh, Africans on this vast scale and began transporting them across the Atlantic uh, to, uh, to the Americas. And again, when they started, uh, you know, launching upon these exterminatory attacks upon uh, Native Americans. It was at that moment that this ideology of mastery took root. It was then, I mean, it wasn't the ideas leading to the, uh, leading to the mastery, rather it was the mastery leading to the ideas. It just so happened that Europeans uh, of that period, of the 16th century especially, they had emerged out of, a, out, of a, out of a history of incredible violence and incredible poverty. You know, I mean, Europe in, the, in that period was devastated by plagues. It was devastated by... Uh, by continuing conflicts going back to the Crusades, but especially in the 16th century, uh, religious conflicts within, uh, within Europe. And, uh, you know, it's very striking that when the first Europeans came to the Americas, what struck them was the incredible uh, good health and uh, bounty, the bounty of the land and the good health of the people. Of course, that disappeared within a, a couple of generations because, uh, you know, because of the violence and also because of the epidemics caused by violence. So in my view, it's re it was really this. It was, uh, it, was the, it was this violence which uh, Europeans unleashed upon other peoples ultimately became uh, a violence unleashed also upon the earth. It was when they began to treat people as resources 
that the idea came to them that everything was a resource uh, meant for the mastery of, uh, you know, a very few. Because let's not forget uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the colonialists, the conquistadores and so on. Uh, they were a tiny minority even within their own countries. Uh, they, were, they were elites uh, really often. And uh, they unleashed the same kind of violence also against uh, farmers and the peasantry uh, in their countries, you know. But most of all, they unleashed it against women. This entire witchcraft craze uh, in Europe is completely coterminous with this period of settler colonialism. And in effect, I mean, uh, the violence that they unleashed upon uh, really poor peasant women uh, in Europe uh, was modeled upon the violence that they had uh, unleashed upon uh, Native Americans. Hmm. Yeah, you speak a lot about how this was really, you know, in the hands of elites that so much of this unfolded, that it wasn't necessarily um, the West as a whole or Europe as a whole, which was unleashing um, uh, these ideologies of the earth being inert, but it was really in the hands of just a few. Yes, very much so. And, uh, you know, it's it's particularly interesting when you see at the philosophers who sort of start articulating this ideology, Really, this is entirely an ideology of conquest and an ideology of uh, uh, supremacy, really. <laughs> what else can you call it? But the philosophers who start articulating the, uh, these ideologies are almost always connected with, uh, uh, with colonial states and with the colonial project. I mean, uh, it's very striking that Descartes was a Frenchman, but in fact, he spent a large part of his life uh, actually in Holland. So he knew very well, uh, you know, the processes of colonization. I mean, Holland was then, uh, in the 17th century, the most important colonizer. And, uh, you know, he was perfectly well acquainted uh, with those processes of, of colonialism. Locke, for example, I mean, uh, he actually had investments in, uh, in, in colonialism. So I don't think it's at all. Uh, it's a Bacon again. I mean, he was Lord Chancellor of England. And I mean, he articulates the colonial project and the project of science in exactly the same way. I mean, for him, science is, uh, the, the ideal method of science is the vexation of nature, in fact, torturing nature, you know, as Caroline Merchant has shown in a very brilliant book. So, you know, we can see that, uh, you know, these projects are completely interconnected. You know, you talk about how the genocide of the indigenous peoples of America uh, was really the beginning of the modern world from Europe. As you said, they were dealing with plagues and violence and extreme poverty, and it was not a highly developed continent and highly developed nations um, at that point. And and that without the pillage of the Americas, there would be no capitalism, no industrial revolution, and perhaps no Anthropocene. And that discussions uh, about climate change are often dominated by capitalism and other economic issues, but that geopolitics, empire... Um, and its histories are often secondary, and that the era of Western military conquests predates capitalism by centuries, and that it was really these conquests that fostered capitalism. Can you talk about why it's so important that these histories be revealed and are part of the discussions about climate change? You know, it's not that, uh, let me say again, it's not that capitalism is not important. Obviously, it is. But I would say really what's uh, absolutely fundamental in a sense is what Cedric Robinson called uh, racial capitalism, you know, because that's really what uh, the circumstance that we're talking about. In any case, uh, it's, it's, you know, these early periods of con uh, conquest, uh, um, let's say the 17th century, they were not really uh, carried out by capitalists as such, though the, uh, the Dutch East India Company certainly was um, a prototypical capitalist uh, organization, perhaps the first multinational. 
But uh, they were carried out under an ideology of uh, uh, mercantilism, you know, state-controlled mercantilism. So it's a very different kind of situation. We don't really get capitalism as such until the late 18th century and and the 19th century. But the essential geopolitical framework uh, under which capitalism came to be was really established long before. It was established in the 16th and 17th centuries. And, you know, it's a, it's a really strange thing that for years and years, uh, people who, uh, economists, economic historians, were always sort of trying to claim that capitalism was something which had no connection uh, with slavery. But now we know through the work of, uh, you know, dozens of scholars that, in fact, without slavery, you don't get capitalism. It was within the context of slavery that many of the prototypical uh, forms of capitalist credit, etc., that, uh, that they emerge. So what especially black scholars and historians have been saying for, for a long time is now shown, shown to be true without a doubt that, you know, you don't get uh, uh, capitalism without first colonialism and, and slavery. The geopolitical framework for the emergence of capitalism was, uh, uh, was I would say, temporally anterior uh, to, the, uh, to the emergence of capitalism, and it was essential. It was essential. Without that, you don't get uh, capitalism. So again, let me say that, of course, capitalism is fundamental to the, uh, to the incredible destruction we are seeing across the planet. But I think, uh, you know, in focusing exclusively on capitalism, we, we are really ignoring the entire geopolitical framework uh, within which capitalism operates and continues to do so till this day. Uh, in Asia, climate change is not seen in the same way. In Asia, Africa, I would say uh, Latin America also, climate change is not seen in the way that it's seen in the West. In the West, climate change is conceived of as, uh, you know, a technocratic thing, a technological thing, a sort of techno-scientific thing. So when you get these uh, COP meetings, who are the people who are there? They're basically a lot of technocrats, bureaucrats, economists. And now increasingly also billionaires of various kinds, big, big corporations and so on. If you go anywhere in Africa or Asia and speak to ordinary people and say, what, uh, you know, uh, what is climate change all about? They'll say it's all about uh, keeping us poor. You know, it's all about the great disparity that's, uh, that's occurred in the world during the period of colonialism. So, you know, what I'm saying <laughs> is actually just the common sense uh, that uh, that prevails, uh, you know, outside the West. In the book, you, you spent some time uh, interviewing and speaking with uh, migrants um, who'd come to Europe from Asia, and none of them seemed to describe climate change in a siloed manner. They always put it in the context of its relationships with um, so many other factors, economic, political, and so on. That is absolutely the case. I mean, in fact, uh, you know, Margaret Atwood famously said about climate change that it's not just about the climate, it's everything changed. And this is something that uh, all these migrants instinctively understood. Uh, and it was very interesting talking to them, really, because, uh, you know, uh, many of the, the people I spoke to, many of them are from Bangladesh and some of them were from, uh, were from Pakistan. And, uh, you know, especially the Bangladeshis are very well educated about, uh, uh, about climate change. They know uh, a lot about climate change. But every time I would ask them, I mean, would you call yourself uh, climate refugees? And they would always say no. I mean, there's, uh, there's so many other factors involved. I mean, people don't make uh, that kind of journey, uh, you know, because of, a single, uh, because of a single motivating factor. There's a whole range of things that drives these great movements. Mm. 
you know, in the book, you ask this question, you just spoke to this, why does capitalism so often come to be abstracted from its wider geopolitical context? Um, and that part of the answer is it's a way of avoiding the real nastiness that lies behind it. And there's this well-known saying that you cite that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, which you say is patently untrue. Um, and that what is really hard to imagine um, than the end of the world is the end of the absolute geopolitical dominance of the West. Yes, yes, I think it's absolutely the case. I mean, uh, you know, you'll see this uh, this statement uh, sort of constantly um, circulated, you know, easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But in fact, you know, in the, in the 20th century, the great majority of mankind uh, didn't live under capitalism. I mean, Ch China was not capitalist. Uh, the Soviet Union was not capitalist. And, uh, you know, many other countries were sort of a, a mix between the two, a sort of semi-socialist like India uh, and also Indonesia and other countries. So the idea that capitalism was the only thing that existed uh, in the 20th century is not true. And the, the reality is that, you know, socialism as practiced in both uh, the USSR and, uh, and, and China was just as maniacally destructive as capitalism. Uh, you know, in, in an environmental sense. I mean, what they, what the Soviets did to their environment, I mean, it's unbelievable. Now, entire lakes have disappeared, rivers have, uh, have disappeared. So th they were completely driven by the same sort of industrial, uh, industrial uh, logic as capitalism, you know. There's a very powerful book by a historian called Bathsheba Demuth uh, about uh, whaling in the Soviet Union in the, uh, in the 1960s. Those whalers had their quotas. They would go and senselessly slaughter vast numbers of whales. What they were doing uh, in the mid-20th century was what uh, Americans had done in the 19th century, you know, as we know from Herman Melville and so on, you know. It's also true that during the two world wars, capitalism was suspended. In Germany, as well as in uh, the UK and in the US, uh, you basically had a statist model of economy, you know. So capitalism has been suspended several, I mean, the normal functioning of capitalism has been suspended many times. Uh, what has never been suspended, actually, is, uh, is the geopolitics of Western empire. And I mean, that's uh, just patently the case. I mean, even the world wars were essentially fought over uh, geopolitical dominance. And, and that geopolitical order is also shifting right now you know, as you described, but another challenge looming large as we confront uh, climate change and the unfolding crisis around us. Yes. Uh, you know, I think it's instructive to look back at the 17th century, which was another period of uh, great climatic disruption, you know. What happened then was a major geopolitical shift. Uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese had been geopolitically dominant in the 16th century, but in the 17th century, uh, Holland became dominant and in uh, in large measure because the Dutch were very good at figuring out how to use wind, uh, wind power, you know, in windmills as well as in, um, as in navigation, you know, they became very expert at uh, using the winds and so on. So there was a major geop geopolitical shift in that period. Similarly, uh, you know, England's mastery of, uh, of fossil fuels was crucial to its dominance in the 19th and 20th centuries. So what we are seeing now, I think, is in fact a similar major geopolitical shift. We can see it already. I mean, you know, just in terms of economy, I mean, China has uh, already reached a point where it's uh, the size of its economy is probably 
the same as that of uh, that of the United States, which was something that was inconceivable uh, 30 years ago, you know. In per capita terms, China may not have the same uh, per, cap, uh, per capita GDP uh, as the US and perhaps never will. But, you know, in terms of uh, uh, the absolute size and weight of its economy, clearly that's shifted. And again, if you put together the economic weight uh, and industrial weight of China, Russia, India, uh, Japan, South Korea, it's clear that there has been a major geopolitical shift away from the Atlantic uh, to the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Rim. Mm. There's an important point that you make um, in the book, which is that as uh, many indigenous voices have reiterated again and again, this planetary crisis is not new at all. It's the Earth's response to globalization and development that was set in motion by European colonization. And that part of what has changed in the last few decades is that these processes have escaped the boundaries of the three colonized continents and become planetary forces. Yes, because uh, in effect, I mean... Uh the path of so-called development that India, China, Indonesia, etc. are launched upon today is exactly uh, the settler colonial model of economy. But, you know, there's a huge difference. The settler colonial model of economy emerged in continents that had been, as it were, forcibly depopulated, you know, and the, and the resources seized. But, uh, you know, China, India, those options aren't there. And yet, you know, they're operating on this logic of cornucopianism, which is an ideology that emerges again in, uh, in America, essentially out of the Anglophone uh, settler colonial experience, which is the idea that you can perpetually grow, that, uh, you know, there's no, there's no limit or horizon to growth. You can just keep growing, growing, growing. And of course, that was possible in America with uh, this vast land and, uh, you know, uh, its endless resources. But now we see uh, that even in America, those resources are, are reaching certain natural limits. And uh, so this is the terrible, uh, this is the terrible sort of quandary that now faces countries like India, Nigeria, and, and so on, that, uh, you know, that they're, they're pursuing a model of growth uh, which... Uh, emerged in, in a completely different historical context. You know, you talk a lot about this term terraforming in the book, which I guess can be described as the process of remaking the living world through ecological violence, development, and modernity, and that many of the places dealing with the extreme impacts of climate change are in some of the most intensely terraformed places on Earth, um, Florida, California, the American Midwest, Southeast Australia, some of the places you cite, places that are being hit repeatedly by fires and hurricanes and flooding. Um, and that it's hard not to wonder whether these landscapes have now decided to shrug off the forms imposed on them by European settlers. The terraforming, I, sh I should explain, is uh, not just interfering with the land, but trying to remake other continents in the image of Europe. The settlers who came to New England really wanted to make their land look like England, you know. This is quite explicitly announced by them several times that uh, this land, this, bar this savage barbaric land is looking more and more like, uh, like our own dear England. And in fact, you know, it's a strange thing. I mean, early colonists, if you look at their, if you look at their discourse about, uh, about North America, uh, they're often kind of uh, horrified by the land because, you know, especially on the East Coast, so much of the land is swamp, swamp land. 
And, uh, 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 you know, English settlers were quite horrified by swamps. You know, they hated swamps. Um, and in fact, uh, swamps became refuges, you know, for, uh, for escaped slaves, uh, as well as for Native Americans. They just withdrew deeper and deeper into the swamps because Native Americans certainly made very productive use of, uh, of swamps, you know. But what is very striking today is that it's exactly these areas that are being worst affected. I mean, you can see that. There's a sort of myth about climate change that, uh, you know, that because uh, the climate movement's always sort of making the point that, you know, the parts of the world that will be worst hit are the poorer parts like in Asia and Africa and so on. And it's true that those parts will be very badly hit. Everywhere will be badly hit. But what we can see now almost, it's a clear pattern is that it's those parts of uh, of the world that have been most intensively terraformed uh, to look like Europe that are now being worst hit. I mean, like where you are in California. No one can say that California is a, is a, poor, is a poor region, you know. Uh, but look how devastated it is. And as you know, I mean, you know, one is now constantly coming across people who are leaving California because uh, it's, the uncertainties have become so great that they can't... They just can't manage anymore. I mean, I'm sure you yourself have felt this anxiety mm. uh, that now haunts uh, so many people in California. Uh, the same is true of Florida, uh, you know, and it's also true in the Midwest. I mean, look at these terrible, uh, terrible floods. So, in fact, in across America, uh, there's a huge, uh, there's a huge movement now for dismantling dams. Dams were thought to be ever such a good idea in the mid 20th century, uh, you know. And you see the same in uh, uh, in Southeast uh, uh, Australia. But curiously enough, you also see the same in Europe. One of the countries that's worst hit by climate change is Italy. You know, and in the Po Valley, which has been so extensively terraformed, uh, in fact, they had a they had a huge flood in the fifties uh, in this region called Polesine, which is near, uh, which is around uh, you know the Po Delta. And in fact, back then in, in the 50s, uh, 250,000 uh, uh, Italians were displaced. They became climate refugees. Nobody speaks about them. Nobody writes about them. But uh, that's what happened. Mm. You know, as we have more and more eco disasters, it becomes harder to uh, hold on to this belief. Uh, uh, you write about this that the, that the Earth is an inert body, existing merely to provide resources to humans, as you've said earlier, and that recognizing that the Earth is alive is key to responding to the climate crisis. And it seems like you're suggesting in the book that it's not going to be recognized as alive um, by purely greeting the economy or driving electric cars. That it is much deeper than that and that the planet will never come alive for you unless your songs and stories give life to all the beings seen and unseen that inhabit living earth, which is a very beautiful line. And this seems like a very different task than what's being debated at COP or by governments, um, the importance of songs and stories? <laughs> well, you know, uh, that whole technocratic discourse about climate change, we've, I mean, it's like, a, it's like a stuck record, isn't it? We see the same things happening year after year in these uh, COP meetings. And it's curious, actually, that, you know, even the scientists, many scientists, uh, in the last 20 years have been speaking about the earth as a living thing. Even very hard-headed uh, types of scientists. But you'll never see economists, for example, speaking of the earth as a living thing because their entire mindset is tied to statistics of a certain kind. 
But you will see now many scientists who do speak uh, of the earth in this way. In my case, I'm not an expert, I'm not a technocrat, I'm not a scientist, but I, I'm a writer, I'm a novelist, I, I write fiction, I write nonfiction. So for me, that's what, what is important. We have to find ways to restore life, you know, to the beings of the earth who have been silenced, uh, you know, in, uh, over the last 200 years. Uh, you know, in this whole period that we call modernity, you know, all these beings have been silenced. You know, there's a huge movement now called TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, which is again being treated uh, and appropriated as a kind of resource, trying to use, as it were, traditional wisdom for managing the earth, as they call it. But this is exactly it. They don't realize that, you know, this kind of wisdom exists in the context of stories, in the context of uh, storytelling, in the context of songs. Uh, you know, and it's all of that that we've lost and that we have to try and uh, bring back. The, the role of stories is something that's very central to this book as it was to your previous book, Great Derangement. And not just human stories, as you say, you know, but the stories that are told by non-human voices that have been silenced. And that essential step towards the silencing of non-human voices was to imagine that only humans were capable of telling stories. And there is a point you make which really stayed with me, um, which is that um, what is at stake is not so much storytelling itself, but rather the question of who can make meaning. Mm. Um, and that we've put the ability to make meaning purely within the human realm. Well, it's not just the human realm, you know. I mean, the whole idea of making meaning, you know, is tied to language, is tied to the idea of uh, humanity, if you like. But this ideology of conquest that we were talking about earlier, where people, where the earth was treated and, uh, as an inert resource, and indeed um, humans were treated as inert resources, the idea was that, uh, in, in fact, those people weren't fully human. Uh, you know, that Native Americans weren't fully human, Africans weren't fully human, uh, Asians weren't fully human. So who was human? <laughs> you know, <laughs> poor uh, European women weren't uh, fully human. Uh, so in fact, I, I mean, <laughs> what those philosophers were really saying is that only, only a tiny minority of educated uh, European elites uh, were fully human. You know, the rest of humanity wasn't human. And the basic thing about their non-humanity was that uh, they could not make meaning, you know. I mean, the, uh, they could make sounds, but sounds are not meaning, you know. Similarly, the earth also makes sounds, but those are just, uh, that's just noise. It's not meaning, you know. Whereas before that, I mean, uh, in Europe as elsewhere, you know, uh, people had always thought uh, of so many other kinds of beings as being capable of making meaning. But what's really interesting there is that, is that you know, Many people may today be willing to accept uh, that there are, um, that let's say animals are, are, are fully sentient beings, that, uh, you know, uh, forests, now it's perfectly clear that forests are sentient, you know, that many kinds of trees uh, are sentient, that they communicate, uh, they do all, I mean, they have incredibly complex communications and so on, which we are now discovering, you know. But I think once you open the door, uh, to the other beings that exist, it quickly <laughs> it quickly opens the door to all kinds of unseen unseen beings as well, uh, you know. And humans have always uh, believed in um, uh, the uh, the real presence of these unseen beings. 
in The Great Derangement, uh, which, as I said, I, I really resonated with, you wrote about the need for literature to take climate change seriously and, and move away from human-centered narratives. And the book clearly has um, made an impact and uh, been a driving force in shifting this. And in the last five years alone, we've seen a steady stream of powerful ecological and climate change-themed fiction from Richard Powers' The Overstory to... Ken Stanley Robinson's The Ministry of the Future, to name just a couple. And I feel like in The Nutmeg's Curse, you're taking this um, further, saying this is the great burden that now rests upon writers, artists, filmmakers, and everyone else who is involved in the telling of stories. To us falls the task of imaginatively restoring agency and voice to non-humans. And with all the most artistic um, important endeavors in human history. This is a task at once aesthetic and political. And because of the magnitude of the crisis that besets the planet, it is now freighted with the most pressing moral agency. That really stayed with me, and and that's really quite a call to action for storytellers as well. Yeah, because, uh, uh, you know, I do feel that this is fundamentally the the basic challenge the planetary crisis poses for for storytellers, and for people who work in the arts, uh, that is how how do we give how do we restore voice uh, to non-humans? And I think Richard Powers does this brilliantly in his uh, in his overstory. I find that other certain other kinds of uh, uh, fiction that are being written, I mean, even though they are about the planetary crisis, are really not about that. They're not about restoring voice to um, a voice and agency to uh, to non-humans. Uh, some of them are speculative, some of them are, you know, what the future might be and so on. And that is really not of that much interest to me. But I I think there is, uh, I mean, there are many, many very interesting books being written right now. I mean, <laughs> and I can tell you, I have like three or four manuscripts arriving every day, uh, you know, from people who say, oh, your book uh, influenced us so powerfully, <laughs> influenced me so powerfully th- that this story came out of it. Now you must read this. Uh, now you <laughs> have to read this book. And I wish I could read them all, but of course I can't, you know. I mean, there's just too many. But uh, I, but I do read some of them, and some of them are, re- uh, are really quite uh, exceptional. I mean, I just read an absolutely exceptional uh, novel um, set in, um, today in the present, completely in the present, uh, and uh, a really, it was a really powerful book. And, you know, at the end of the day, a novel has to be uh, relatable. It has to have uh, relatable characters. It has to have relatable predicaments. Uh, and uh, that was true of this novel. James Lovelock's Gaia theory plays a prominent role in the book, including what you describe as the monstrous Gaia, the Gaia that is responding to the terraforming and treatment the Earth has suffered over the last few hundred years. And there is a question about Gaia you explore um, that I want to ask you here and I think ties into this call to action you issued to to storytellers. Um, you know, What does it mean to live on an Earth as though it were Gaia? That is to say, a living, vital entity in which many kinds of beings tell stories. And how does the planetary crisis appear when seen from that perspective? And I know that's a very big question, but I ask it nonetheless. <laughs> Look, for many of us, no matter how hard we try, we'll never be able to be in communication, if you like, uh, with beings of other kinds. You know, it's been, that, that faculty has been educated out of us. 
uh, you could say all of modern education is, is, is essentially aimed at suppressing that faculty, if you like. But there are people in the world, and there have always been people in the world who have been able to uh, communicate with non-human beings. We know that. Uh, you know, there are shamans uh, in, uh, in North America, and also there are many kinds of shamanic traditions amongst, uh, uh, amongst uh, Native Americans in, in South America, and indeed in Africa and India and so on. And, uh, you know, they've always, I mean, they've been regarded by, by modern people as superstitious, ignorant, stupid, uh, as charlatans, and so on and so forth. You know, I mean, the whole point, I mean, you see this most clearly uh, in North America, you know, the sort of violence that's uh, unleashed against uh, against Native Americans isn't just about taking their land or whatever. It's also about destroying their beliefs because those people felt, uh, European colonizers just felt so profoundly threatened uh, by Native American beliefs, most of all by their beliefs in the life of the earth, if you like, or the life of landscapes and the lives of many different kinds of beings. So, uh, you know, most of us will never be able to recover that kind of voice, you know. But I think what it says to us is that we have to be doubly attentive to those people who have not lost that ability. And after all, why should they not have that ability? I mean, why is it such a great stretch? I mean, I know that some people are, are incredibly good with dogs, for example. I'm not. But I know that some people are, and they can really understand and, as it were, almost uh, communicate uh, with dogs, with cats, with elephants. They have a faculty, they have a facility, just as mathematicians have a certain facility with numbers. So why should it, why should it really surprise us? I mean, human beings have all kinds of abilities, you know? And why should we disregard these abilities, you know? Human beings have had these uh, abilities forever, and many of the people who make these claims about uh, communication with non-humans uh, were some of the most respected people of their times. Uh, you know, you take St. Francis of Assisi, for, uh, for example, and so many others. I mean, all the great uh, Native American uh, shamans, you know, I mean, that was what they did. They communicated with other kinds of beings, whether it be animals or spirit beings or whatever. And it's also very striking that usually th this is not done unaided. You know, often uh, in the case of uh, uh, Native Americans, uh, it goes along with a botanical substance. Uh, um, otherwise, it's um, in the in the Sufi tradition, for example, it goes along with bodily exercises. You know, like spinning and uh, you know trance states. So, uh, you know, why should this be so <laughs> difficult to believe? I don't find it difficult to believe. No, I, I don't find it difficult to believe either. And 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 you know, one thing that stuck with me, you know, towards the end of the book is where you're talking, I guess, about, you know, how do we find our a way forward with the recognition of the earth being alive and the need to re regain the ability to listen to the non-human and express the importance of the non-human through stories. And, and you talk about or hypothesize the process in which, um, you know, human beings became indigenized and assimilated into landscapes um, many, many, many thousands of years ago. And, and how that's part of what needs to happen, it seems, is to, again, become assimilated into landscapes to build those relationships with place. And the question I was stuck with is, you know, but how do we do that in the modern world when so much has been shifted and so much has been altered? And even a relationship to place is, for so many people, um, been removed. Yes. Uh, 
those relationships to place have been profoundly altered. But, you know, I do also find encouragement when I look around um, North America, when I look around the United States, because in many invisible ways, Americans have absorbed a, a, an enormous amount from indigenous people. You know, this, this, what they've absorbed, they've tried to hide, they've tried to deny, they've tried to um, obfuscate, if you like. But they have learned uh, many, many lessons, uh, you know, uh, uh, from indigenous peoples. And I do think some of this also has to do with ways of uh, relating to land. If we look at the work of Wendell Berry, for example, I think we see it very clearly that, uh, you know, in some ways he's relating uh, to these landscapes. I mean, we may be strangers in this land, but uh, people are learning. I mean, if you look at the Standing Rock movement, uh, many of the people who were there were not uh, Native Americans, uh, but they developed an equally intense feeling, maybe not equally intense, but certainly a very powerful feeling for the land, uh, you know. So I, I, I think it is possible and I think it's probably, it can come back. You know, uh, I've just come back from uh, the eastern shore in Virginia and that's an area, it's, you know, basically swampland and it was one of the first areas to be devastated by settler colonialism. But when you see the fishermen who work there, for example, I mean, you know, they're just ordinary fishermen. Uh, but you can sense that they too have over the years, as they work in these swamps, as they work, uh, you know, many of them are African-Americans again, that some feeling for the land returns to them, you know. Mm. Amitav, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today uh, about your work. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Emmanuel. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Ben Solitiano. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.